Welcome to Reason for Hope. My name is Adrian, and I'm in studio with our pastor here, Sean Richards. Wow. Little Bible encyclopedia that he is. <laughs> It's a real pleasure to be here with you today. Happy Monday. This is a Reason for Hope, your Bible Answer Program, where you, our live stream audience, can uh, contact us via the live stream. We live stream simultaneously to multiple platforms. So if you have a question about the Bible, the Christian worldview, <clears throat> uh, perhaps how to apply a specific passage of Scripture to your life, or how to interpret the Bible in a way that will honor God, that is true to facts and history, and uh, how to properly interpret the scriptures. We call that the art and science of biblical interpretation or hermeneutics. Uh, those are all things that are very important to the life of the Christian, especially a, a good Bible-believing local community of believers, what we call a church. So if you have a question that pertains to anything uh, to the Christian worldview, uh, please join us. We're here to serve you, to help you grow in your walk and in your faith in the Lord. So if you have a question, uh, first of all, you can simply email us <clears throat> directly. I'll be checking those emails as they come in. And if we get a question, uh, we'll try to answer it here on the program. We do this every weekday, Monday through Friday, uh, 4 to 5 p.m. That's Mountain Standard Time. So we've changed our time up an hour. So keep, keep that in mind if you're an old listener and you've missed us for a little while. We're starting an hour earlier. So you can email us directly at questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also catch us on Facebook. We live stream to our Facebook page, which is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. So if you go to facebook.com forward slash CCF Tucson, you'll find our Facebook page. Or you can just search for us on Facebook, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and you'll find us that way as well. <clears throat> Join the live stream. Use the comment section. Ask your questions. We'll be monitoring throughout the entire program. If we don't get to your question, we'll make a, we make a little list. We actually will save it and we'll get to it. So no question gets missed on this program. Um, we can also catch us simultaneously on uh, YouTube. We have a YouTube channel called A Reason for Hope, and you can go directly to that channel by going to youtube.com forward slash at, the at symbol, A Reason for Hope, the number four, hope. <clears throat> or you can just search for A Reason for Hope on YouTube, and if you see that little red icon with the white dove, then you know you have found us. If you want to avoid social media platforms altogether, you can also go to our website. <clears throat> our website, CalvaryChristianFellowship.com, and just hit that Watch Live tab, and then you can watch just like you would on any other social media platform without the, you know, having to have a, your own account or profile. So you can be a complete stranger, go to our website, watch the live stream. You can watch all of our services. We have our Wednesday evening Oasis services from uh, 6.30 p.m. Uh, to about 8.00. And we're currently going through the book of Esther. On Wednesdays, we, yes. Are we, and we've made some good progress. I've been out, so uh, I don't know how far we are into the book, but uh, I know we have. Starting chapter two, ironically, <laughs> it was the perfect storm. The week after was Valentine's Day, and I filled in for the father. And then the week after that, self-explanatory forthcoming. So. Oh, right. And then we had a, yeah, and on Sunday, where uh, our services are at 9 and 11 a.m., and we are currently going through the Book of Acts. But last week we had a very special guest, uh, David Guzek. I would really encourage you to check out the message. Um, I, I, in fact, I'm just in the process of uploading it and getting it up on all our platforms. So if you want to check that out, I encourage you to listen to his uh, presentation. Really encourage you to do that. Thirty year anniversary of the church. Oh, that's right. That was why he was here, wasn't it? Yeah. Celebrating thirty years. Wow, it's been that long. I remember. Uh, popping my head in every Wednesday night at the hotel when it was started at the hotel. Those were good times. I was still in gestation. <laughs> we would go over to the village inn next door and 
know, hatch away at the message and, you know, go through the scriptures and dialogue and discuss. I had a small group of rabble-rousers that would like to go into theological topics. It was a lot of fun. Uh, if you're a part of our community, we also have an app that you can download. It's a little Bible app, <clears throat> calendar events, um, chat groups you can create, you can donate, you can look at all our catalog of past messages. We are a church that teaches verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. So if you want to, say, do a study of, uh, I don't know, maybe the Gospel of John, and you want to just go through the whole Gospel, and you want to have sort of like a commentary and good teaching on the entire book, verse by verse, in order, in context, you can do that. <clears throat> and so we have taught through the majority of the Bible over the last 30 years, so we have a large, large catalog, uh, mostly audio, you know, not, not the visuals. The visuals are more of a recent development, but uh, you can check it out. So you can download that app on the iTunes, or I should say the Apple or Google Play Store, and I'd encourage you to do that. We also have our live streaming channel on all Amazon Fire and Roku devices. And so if you want to catch our services or watch this program, maybe just listen in, uh, you can do so by uh, adding our channel to those platforms. Before we get to your question, we'll take a moment to pray and ask the Lord to be present with us. Uh, Sean, would you do the honors and we'll get started. It would be an honor. Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be here. Please fill aging and I with your spirit and equip us not only with the strength to answer these questions, but the heart. Allow this to be a time that honors you and thank you that we've been given the privilege in the first place. We pray that your people would be ministered to as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> well, you'll forget, hope you'll forgive me. I, I sound like a Wookiee with a uh, what is Grogu's race called? <laughs> it is thrust stuck in his throat. So, um, but um, yeah, I've been out for the last couple of weeks, uh, and my voice is still catching up. And now we're taking uh, straws and poles, basically, at the church. Not gambling per se, but guessing <laughs> as to who's going to be next. Who's next? Yeah. I thought I was last. I thought everyone got it. Got hit by something at some point. I know that um, you know my son's in preschool. He's four. And uh, it's like a little germ factory. He brings something lovely home, uh, you know, just about every week. So, Such is <clears throat> the burden to bear, I suppose, in parenthood. Yeah. Well, let me get over to our chat, our, our question channel here. Um, and, uh, of course, noting uh, when you see the intro music and special effects added, you know that professionals are handling it. So we appreciate you leveling some of the burden now that Dave's going to focus on being a worship leader. Yeah, yeah, no, not a, my pleasure. I love being here. Anytime I can hop in and push some buttons and enhance the program, it's always a real priv pri privilege. And uh, so we had a couple questions left over from Friday, correct? Mm -hmm. And then we'll get to those. It's just loading here. Um, this uh, first question is uh, Robbie's question about our thoughts on Genesis 6, 1 through 4 and the popular views of Lucifer and Lilith. Uh, so I guess taking piecemeal wouldn't be a reason for hope in two weeks' time without having to talk about the Nephilim at least once. So <laughs> when we're talking about this issue, and it is a popular one among not necessarily Christian circles, but certainly... Uh, biblical enthusiasts, um, the discussion of the giants in Genesis 6. And if you want to turn there again, it's the famous passage leading right before the flood of Noah, 
where it notes that violence was on the face of the earth, the thoughts of men's hearts was only wicked continually. That was the fallout, but the cause of it has led to an interesting divide where people are wondering, was it the result of spiritual issues, marital issues, relational issues, moral ones, or in this case, basically uh, amalgamation of bad sci-fi? And if that doesn't tell you where I stand on this, I don't know what will. Um, the Nephilim issue is, again, taken from Genesis 6, and I'll read the passage so that you don't have to take my word for it. It goes all the way into verse 11, so I'll do my best to make sure we're representing both positions fairly, because this isn't an issue that would necessarily make or break you as a Christian. I'm just noting that it leads to weird places. Genesis 6 and verse 1 says, Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. The Lord said, My spirit will not strive with men forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. They were giants, that's the word Nephilim, in on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of men was great on the earth, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, and the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God, and Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the earth was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked on the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. That's as much as I think needs to be discussed on this issue. Now we will come to conclusions, and we'll test those conclusions based off of other Bible passages. So starting with the two main positions, I'm sure there are others, but when it comes to the non, uh, I guess, Alex Jones sphere of the internet, the first and most popular position is that it's the result and consequence of the, I guess, intermarrying of demons, obviously not righteous angels, but spiritual beings, and that is in reference to the sons of God. Now, what would cause that to produce offspring that would be given this classification of Nephilim? What was the significance of that, and how do they justify it with other passages? Well, once again, I'm starting with a position I disagree with, so you understand we don't just say our way is the only way. We actually read and take seriously other views. That's allowed. This, this is a secondary one for certain. The first support they would use for concluding that the term sons of God is referring to demonic entities, or at least spiritual beings we would refer to as angels, is because the term sons of God is used in the book of Job to describe angelic creatures. In Job chapters 1 and 2, that title is used in reference to those kind of creatures. Now, the ones who disagree with that will draw attention to another small detail in those same passages, but we're not there yet. Now, what about the issue of, okay, why would they intermarry in the first place? Are there any other references to this? Not directly, but there are some who conclude that it is. In Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 4 and Jude 1, 6, Peter and Jude mentioned that angels who sinned in the past 
went after, quote, strange flesh, unquote. And because it's in the same setting as another example that's made referencing Sodom and Gomorrah, it's assumed that the sin that the angels committed was somehow biological in nature. I will keep this PG as much as I can. Uh, it also notes that point in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 16, where God does not give aid to angels, but does give aid to the sons of Abraham. The thought is, because angels can't be redeemed from their sinful state, but mankind is essentially on its first steps in God's plan to redemption, this was an effort on demonic authorities to interfere with that by messing up the gene pool. And they would also use certain statements like, the genealogies of Noah were perfect. That's in reference to his biology being uncorrupted. Now, those are all the supports, and note that their conclusions from the text are referencing other sections of Scripture that may or may not justify that, but there is a big, and I mean capital B, big problem with the whole conclusion. If, in fact, angels, or in this case specifically demonic creatures, can be referred to as sons of God, which we wouldn't contest, Job 1 and 2 do indeed refer to angels being gathered together and referred to as sons of God. Do they have the capacity, as the text says, to take wives for themselves and produce offspring? Well, in Matthew 22 and verse 30, an authority on spiritual matters, as none other than Jesus of Nazareth said, that in reference to the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they are like the angels in heaven. The whole conversation of this statement and what we would conclude as a counterpoint is because when the Sadducees, excuse me, were arguing with Jesus about the concept of an afterlife, a resurrection, they were saying, well, that's impossible because we can hypothetically come up with this absurd scenario, and therefore that makes the whole concept ridiculous because we can imagine something that would make it sound silly. Jesus debunks them by saying, in the resurrection, you're like the angels, which means categorically you aren't concerned with things like who you're married to, who you're reproducing with, because you no longer have those functions. The focus is back onto Jesus. So that's the point of emphasis. If Genesis 6 notes that they took wives for themselves, not that they were assaulted or forced in some form of impregnation, that is in fact the result. And that would be a category error if we say that fallen angels, angels nonetheless, but in a separated relationship with God, thus doing this and resulting in the Second Peter and Jude 1 consequences, would in fact be referring to what? A situation where... They were doing something that Jesus says angels don't do in the first place. Now, they can argue from silence at this point and say, well, maybe, I don't have any verses to support this, but maybe that's why God shut off their reproductive capacities, because of this incident. And then I would just throw up my hands and say, chapter and verse, we're not going to come to a conclusion on a hypothetical. So that would be the first problem. The second one is that the sons of God is a reference or a term, rather, that's also used for human beings. For example, in Hosea chapter 1 and verse 10, it refers to the children of Israel as sons of God. Therefore, we conclude it's not a descriptive term of angels, but a description of a relational term, angel or human. Mm. Thus the problem. The third issue <clears throat> is that in the immediate historical context of this, the term Nephilim, if the purpose of the flood was to destroy man, 
not half man, half angel, but man <laughs> in the text. There's no new genus being introduced here. They don't go into details about their genealogies. The word literally and appropriately refers to giants, but the literal translation is fallen ones. Hmm. So like sons of God, it would be appropriate to refer to it as a relational term, man becoming more and more wicked and of great influence than to be more and more massive, which can both be the case. So it's like saying the rebel, the rebellious ones, the ones who are severing their relationship with God, and then the sons of God are the ones who are walking in that relationship. Yeah, it's not, I know the rebels were the good guys in Star Wars, but it's not <laughs> saying you were born one of those rebels as a yeah. description of your biology, but your relational and political association. Mm -hmm. So this would lead into the alternative, but again, we're not there yet. We're critiquing the first. The third problem, again, like we were talking about, is in the historical context. What would be the point of telling Israel about this event about four to 6,000 years before this time? If the takeaway lesson is just to remind the girls, hey, don't uh, let an angel take advantage of you because it'll produce demon babies, I mean, that might inspire some horror movies in the future, but it's not going to actually give them anything practical for Israel's immediate future. On the <clears> other <throat> hand, if we note, and this is the issue, that the Nephilim were also in Canaan at the time of Numbers, chapter 13 and verse 32, either God failed in the flood to wipe out the Nephilim, there was somehow an imperfection in Noah's genealogy, and there are responses. They'll say, it wasn't Noah's genealogy, but it could have been the wives of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Okay, whatever, but once again, so One of them were a half-breed, perhaps, or a quarter-breed, or something like that. I don't the know. <laughs> but once again, you're reading more and more into yeah. the text, and that's going to cause it to lack, in fancy terms, parsimony. You have to keep stretching information rather than just taking it plainly. Mm. You have to read a lot into the text to say Nephilim's referring to genetics. That's why I don't necessarily hold the view. There's also a very, very important issue with the presumption that your genetics, your biology, would somehow invalidate you for salvation. Uh, there would be racial supremacist groups who could say, and the IUIC groups and black yeah. Israelites say, well, you're from the tribe of Edom, and God categorically has defined the white man as ineligible for salvation. Or the Anglo-Israel mm. tribes, where you right. say, unless you're white, you're not eligible for salvation. Yeah. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. Depictions of culture, depictions of background, depictions of biology, irrelevant, you're all one in Christ Jesus. Mm. So just like with the Nephilim issue being centered around the idea of sons of God being a logic error, the category error of saying salvation's dependent on angels not stewing things up, again, the pro-Nephilim crowd would say, but that's why it was so serious, that's why it was so sinful. You have to assume your conclusion now. And why do they presume that Peter or Jude are referring to Genesis 6? Uh, because the, it's a list of examples of God dealing with false prophets. And like Sodom and Gomorrah, who for their sin were judged by God, like the angels who were judged by God, but it doesn't give a specific example, because it's in that conversation list of examples, they assume it was all sexual. I, every time I hear someone who holds to the view that you're uh, confronting, they just assume, they say, well, Peter was obviously referring to Genesis 6. And I thought, well, how do you know that? He doesn't use any of the words in Genesis 6. He doesn't quote Genesis 6. He just says that, angels defiled their proper abode and things, that kind of language, but that's not what Genesis 6 says. 
And it could just be referring <laughs> to either A, something we don't know about, or B, something we are told, yeah. they fell. <laughs> yeah, and, and what do you think of that? I, I mean, well, I know you have your other... The other yeah, we'll get into it in a second. That, but, and I might be already stepping into that realm, but I've always found it interesting that when Jesus refers to um, him, his appearance, he, they thought he was a spirit. And he goes, a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Mm-hmm. That was sort of the... That ended it for me. I'm like, well, yeah. Hebrews chapter one says that the angels are ministering spirits. Spirits don't have physical; they're they're incorporeal beings. They don't have physical bodies like you and I have. Um, they can manifest physically right. by by God's power, but we only see angels ever doing that. We never see a demon or a fallen angel doing that because they are spirits, and now God's not giving them the authority to manifest physically as human beings. And you'd be the first to double down on this point. Exorcisms are not a physical manifestation of the demon. It's the demon inhabiting something that's already there. Yeah, and so, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that what Jude's referring to in in the parallel of using Sodom and Gomorrah wasn't the, the act of intimacy, so to speak, but it was the violent... Uh, um, the the violent uh, will rape. I don't want to use the word, but it, that's what was happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so, when a demon invades a human being, there's no greater violation spiritually, in parallel to the violation that was being committed in Sodom and Gomorrah physically. So the parallel is that there's a great violation of a person's personhood, but one spiritual violation and demon demonic possession, and the other is a physical violation of sexual immorality. Yeah, and that's a possible way of dealing with it. When I'm teaching this with the junior hires and high schoolers, what I focus on instead is to say they're all categorically not talking about the action but the outcome, that God judged them. So Mm -hmm. you leave that to God. You just focus on teaching sound doctrine. That's what the conversation was about. So getting lost in the weeds about the whole issue of, well, how did the demons violate this? We are told about it in that passage, but to go more than the text would support or taking this, this, and that, you form a conclusion with the text, you test the text with other passages, and if there's more against you than for you, then you find another position. You don't keep looking for further justification or altering, dare I say, passages to fit Mm. into your assumption. So that's the big issue is, first of all, the assumption that the sons of God is only and only ever could refer to angels, that's Mm -hmm. false, see Hosea 1.10. The assumption that, well, this was the spiritual creatures um, cohabitating and marrying with women, that's again a category error according to Matthew 22.30. Jesus says that angels don't do that. If you say, well, there's a distinction between angel and demon, not not in origin, not in genus, not in what they are. Mm. It's their relationship with God, which is where our focus goes, and this is what brings us to the second point. All of these errors, all these problems. Our position has one problem, and we are willing to acknowledge that, but let's just give it its fair hearing, and so you can understand where we are in our position on this. The position that we take in the second view 
is that the Nephilim were influential people in the ancient world that were produced from the compromised or unequally yoked relationships between the godly line of Seth and the ungodly line of Cain. And this would set a precedent on going forward for how compromised relationships spiritually end up making an impact on future generations quite dramatically. Another example of this would be very practical in Israel's immediate history in the book of Numbers when the Moabites tried to intermarry with them and got them involved in idolatry. Now, where would I get this uh, introduction of Cain's daughters as opposed to Seth's uh, sons? Well, the immediate context leading up to chapter 6. In Genesis 4, we see the murder of Cain and Abel, or Abel being murdered by Cain, and then it goes briefly into his genealogy. All of Genesis 5 is dedicated to um, Seth's genealogy, the righteous lineage that ultimately led up to Noah, and then Genesis 6 starts. So without stepping out of the text, all of these terms are used to refer to what is immediately being brought up. I think that that doesn't have too much to assume in this case. Who are the sons of God? Someone who could call God as a son. Who are the daughters of men? Well, there's a distinction between a relationship with God and a relationship with man that would probably be referring to what? The not godly people. And these were daughters in this case. And nothing's worse for family life than an ungodly spouse, let me tell you. Um, I would support that again with Numbers 25 and so forth. But as far as the problems are concerned, we're looking at this from the lens of fairness. And you recognize I spent about 15 minutes covering the first view and all the passages that they have. And that's the first problem, is there are other views, and other views that can be used scripturally to make this case. The problem is for every verse they use to support it, there are two against it. So this is the point. We take this view not because you have to, be, you have to believe this about the Nephilim to be saved, there are good Bible teachers and Christians whose studies I would even sit under in any other context where they hold this view as just an insight, a throw out, whereas I would take the view that there was an intentional warning on God's part to tell them about this because the same thing was about to happen to them with the people of Moab. In the conversations, as long as we both understand that the non-negotiables of Christianity are as follows. First, the nature of God as a trinity. Second, that Jesus is God the Son within that trinity. Third, that salvation is by grace through faith in the work of the Son. And then, of course, we get all of that from the Bible, which is our infallible and authoritative source on the first three topics. If we can agree on that, then the Nephilim issue will be sorted out. If they're a purely intellectual person, which none of us are, then I think we could persuade them out of that position. But as I said, it's not that simple. Just make sure that when we're getting in conversations about this, that it's all centered around the Bible rather than other sources, which is what leads us to the second question from Robbie about Lilith and Lucifer and the modern views of them. Uh, for those who don't know about Lilith, I'm pretty sure most of you know Lucifer. It's a um, Latinized uh, pronunciation of son of the morning. It was uh, referenced in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, I believe, where um, his fall from heaven was turning him from this glorious cherub, a blessing, a very exalted angel, into a name that would literally be translated accuser or adversary. So 
what's the common view on that? Well, in the conversations I've had with Satanists and Luciferians even, the point that they would put forward about Satan in modern context is that he's been misrepresented as the rebel, and because, first assumption, history is written by the winners, since we are only getting God's perspective on Lucifer's fall, he's just made out to be the bad guy. Whereas the other view is that his desire was for us to have knowledge, and God didn't want competition in that department, so he gets a bad rap and he's condemned, but in reality he's just the outcast, and we need to have the to reference the uh, 70s song, I believe, uh, Sympathy for the Devil. The point being made in response to this whole nightmare is the mindset of, and if someone tries to bring this up with you, ask them, so where'd you learn about what happened with Satan, that he was in heaven, he was in the presence of God, and he was cast out? Well, the Bible, right? That's the biggest and most historically certain source on insights into the spiritual because it was backed up with miracles. But then you ask, so what led you to your conclusion that the Bible is misrepresenting him if that's the place you actually found out about him first? And they would say, well, because... And the conversation will hopefully get even more awkward after that. I won't go too long in dead air to emphasize the point. But when you're talking to someone about that, just note, so is it reasonable to say the Bible's true in what it describes about Lucifer, but then to also read into it and say it's been co-opted and edited and it's, it's reliable and it's unreliable? There is, in fact, a Lucifer out there and there isn't. This picture is inaccurate, but I don't have any other source to take it. My source is trust me, bro, to quote David Wood. So the point is try to keep them consistent on that, and I think the modern view will fall apart because even a cursory reading of Genesis chapters 2 and 3, God wasn't withholding knowledge carte blanche from mankind. They knew everything they needed to know from God, and it was demonstrated in the things God was calling them to do. I, again, I'm not uh, as adept in the exercise as my ancestors, to my great shame, but to be a tender of the Garden of Eden, botany ain't simple. <laughs> Gardening isn't uh, just, you know, raking leaves and such. You have to have a very intimate knowledge of how to keep and manage pests. You need to be able to know what certain plants need to be able to manage environments, knowing when to pick, when to harvest, when to cultivate. Adrian, you had a, a lemon tree, and that was enough of a chore. You had to do a lot of research in order to manage that thing. Imagine having to give, be given charge of a whole garden. Yeah. Then you take a look at... Yeah, well, <laughs> that wasn't entirely your fault, but that's another story. But uh, when we're also talking about what else God had Adam doing, it wasn't, you know, just sit in the corner and not mess anything up. He was called to subdue the earth, to really bring it under his authority, and to give names, to categorize, to identify each animal according to its kind. So he not only needed to have an understanding of these animal species, but also to be able to recognize and, and uh, define them according to their characteristics. That's, that's the job of scientists today. So if we're going to say that, well, God under, or Adam under God was stupid, and Lucifer wanted to give him knowledge, he was doing some pretty smart stuff before Satan got involved. <laughs> this is Genesis 1 and 2, so, or Genesis chapter 2 specifically. So when he told them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they leave out those words, what would Adam have gained as a result of that sin? 
Well, the knowledge of good and evil. If he knew God, then he already knew good. Let's just note that as the point. So what would they then gain? Evil. They would decide for themselves whether this was good, this was evil. They would adopt rebellion into their natures. And the same is true for anything else today. When you're given a choice to say yes or no to relationship, to sabotage, isolate, and prevent any other competition from getting involved is not only creepy, but it shows just how insecure the person is. Whereas God made the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the other option, just as appealing as what represented our relationship with him, that being the tree of life. So note that point, give them more information, and it doesn't require anything more than just reading two chapters. Hopefully that will hold their attention. <clears throat> Lilith, on the other hand, uh, again, we want to keep this PG, so I won't go into too many details, but Lilith is an entity that is entirely based in the realm of Jewish fiction. Uh, Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism are intentionally written as fictional, historically fictional, insights and perspectives into the spiritual realm along the same line of reliability as we would look at Marvel comics today. Mm -hmm. They can illustrate and represent real life issues, but the only reason all these characters were doing were either A for entertainment or B to illustrate some finer real world point. Lilith in the case was dealing with some very awkward marital issues, but I'll spare you the details unless you really want to know. Point being made is this. Uh, she's described in the Kabbalic texts as the quote-unquote first wife of Adam, and when she wouldn't submit under his authority, and again, I'm not saying in a social way, the original text, it's really weird, um, God cursed her and made her queen of the demons. She became the consort of Azazel, who's one of the nine lords of hell, not in the Bible, and because of the uh, lack of ability to produce natural offspring, the introduction of a new type of demon that's associated with her was created. Again, won't get into it unless you ask. It's very inappropriate. But the point being made in illustration is modern perspectives on her see she's a feminist icon or rather a matriarchist icon. She says, well, I'm not gonna be submitting to authority and the God of Israel is this oppressive, misogynistic, patriarchal bigot. And Lilith is the personification of that. So if you really want to stick it to the white man, then you need to uh, see Lilith as your paragon, not as Jesus. Well, once again, a little bit of research into where the term of Lilith came from you're going to realize the only reason she exists as a concept is because of some very misogynistic and patriarchal ideas. And it's really weird that she's being used then as the opposite of what she was intended to illustrate. Mm. So just like with Lucifer, you have to assume it's reliable and it's unreliable in its source material. Mm -hmm. You can co-opt an idea and make up your own version, but why not just come up with your own thing? It's not something that's grounded in reality. And if they say, well, that's true of all religious themes, well, now we're just not being objective. So if you take the Bible seriously, you aren't going to conclude modern sentiments about Lucifer. But if, on the other hand, you adopt modern sentiments of Lucifer, it depends on you both taking and not taking the Bible seriously mm -hmm. on revealing to us what yeah. he is in the first place. So what's going on? Same thing for Lilith. In order to come to conclusions about her true message, you have to both assume and dismiss the reason she was written into history from Jewish mysticism. So just don't get caught up in now that. Now, doesn't Robbie. Isaiah, though, mention the name Lilith in Isaiah 34? 
the word, but it no more mentions that than it mentions my name, John, which means God is gracious. Uh, the word, as opposed to the term. Yeah. Uh, and, and let me give an illustration of that, because I kind of mentioned it in passing. The term is azel. It is in the Bible, but it's literally scapegoat. It's a reference to the ceremony mm. during the Day of Atonement, where the sins of Israel would be put on two animals, one that would be killed, the other that would be have it place ceremony on them, and then just sent off into the wilderness. Literally in the Hebrew, it says an offering to Azazel. Mm -hmm. Now they aren't saying we're making a sacrifice to one of the nine lords of hell in order to appease him on behalf of all of Israel. That would be idolatry. That would be attributing divine attributes to a demonic creature. The word is literally just describing what the goat represents. Mm -hmm. It's bearing the punishment for us instead. They took that term, just like yeah. I I'm trying to think of an example, but like Captain America doesn't constitute the united the unification of the fifty states in the central North American region. He's representing that idea because the image behind it is patriotic. Mm -hmm. yeah. The same reason for the Nine Lords of Hell with Azazel, it's because he had goat-like features. Mm -hmm. That's it. <laughs> well, there's only one translation that, actually, or that I'm aware of that apparently trans renders the word to Lilith, and that's the New Revised Standard Version. All other Bible translations either have something along the lines of night creature or screeching owl Which as the word that they translated if, Lilith. From, and what's the context of it in Isaiah? I, I haven't read the passage. I'm not familiar with the actual context. It's, let me it has nothing to do with it. Adam, though, that's for sure. <laughs> let me summarize it for the listening audience. You can get it in a moment, but it's not referring to the queen of demons. Yeah. So with yeah, that said. It just says, And wild animals shall meet with hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, the night bird settles and finds herself in a nesting place. So it's that's describing botanical interactions. That's that's describing, describing animals. So, yeah, but anyhow, I rest my case. But let yeah. us know if that helps you out, Robbie. Yeah, thanks for the question. Uh, we got a question from our website stream, and um, uh, Guy wants to know uh, when when Jesus says, "In my house there are many mansions," mm. uh, is heaven itself the many mansions that he is referring to? Uh, is God himself heaven? There is nothing bigger than himself. So how is that possible? Uh, if God is big enough for us, why does heaven exist? Well, heaven in two words, and I make sure that this is clear when people are getting into conversations about heaven and hell, I say, summarize it for me in two words or less. And then they start to rumble and stumble, and they're just like, with robes, uh, harp music... I don't know. I say, with Jesus. That's what that term is. And I come to that conclusion not just because it suffices the point, but it's in the passage you're referencing. Uh, this is John chapter 14 and verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, you believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare to prepare a place for you. Now, this is where the prosperity groups and cult groups would go full stop and say, see, you got mansions, you got multi-room buildings, like some image from Norse paganism waiting for you in this paradise, and you're going to get to, you know, decorate and order around the maids to keep it and stuff. Now, what does he go on to say? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Notice, not to those places. I'll receive you to myself. 
the subjects already change from the illustration of a house to the literal application of being present with him. Your second option, Guy. It goes on to say that where I am, notice not where your places are, not where my construction projects for you are, where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Now, if this was a amalgamation of giant mansions, then he would expect the disciples to be imagining a bunch of high-rise New York cities, right? But what does he then say? Thomas asks him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. Notice he understands the point. He's not describing, he doesn't know where these buildings are located. He doesn't know where you're going. And how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through So the whole conversation abandons the idea of buildings because they've served their purpose. They're illustrating a dwelling place. And you can see other examples of this, like in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul uses a point of contrast between a tent, a temporary dwelling place, and a building of God, eternal in the heavens. Now, why does he do that? Because this body is made of canvas and poles and that will have ultimately concrete in heaven? No, he's using poetic imagery in order to illustrate a finer point with the human body. Another example would be in 1 Corinthians 15, but primarily 2 Corinthians 5. The body is being illustrated. Like a tent in this body that breaks down and is temporary, a building is permanent so will that body be. So the mindset and image of the mansion-esque mindset is also, just as a side note, the reason why I find it suspicious when people describe heaven as these multi-million dollar mansion complexes, because that wasn't Jesus' point at all. When it comes to where we'll be, it's with Jesus. That's what makes heaven what it is with Jesus. My reward, Revelation chapter 22, is with me. So when we get focused on the material, we're missing the point. When he gives the definition, the illustration, and the point of application, we think that the illustration is all of it. No, he's describing what it's like to be in his presence, to be with him. As far as the semantics, it's like, well, will we have a house? We'll figure it out when we get there. But the point being made is just that. It's talking about the fact heaven is with him. And also, by contrast, hell is without him. Make him your focus, Mm -hmm. not the goodies or illustrations. I think you'll be fine. Yeah, and the idea that fitting in God is somewhat of a misunderstanding of who God, what God is. God is spirit. He's immeasurable. He doesn't have length, width, height. Uh, but you and I will have physical bodies when we're in his presence. So the idea of mansions, uh, if we're physical beings, which we will be, we'll have physical bodies. And we'll return to the earth where God will manifest his glory through the sun. Yeah. And so the idea that God's big enough for us is maybe, it sounds good, but it misunderstands that the relationship between the physical and the non-physical, something that's spiritual is just so beyond our you know, like, like the Bible says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has even conceived of what God has planned for those who love him. So if that's the case, uh, the only glimpse we have is many mansions, whatever that may look like. We have no idea. <laughs> and if you need points of application, as well, where are we going to stay while we're in heaven? Well, we know that in heaven, in the presence of God, there will be physical accommodations like the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. We do know that when we return to this earth, the Lamb is coming with us, a la 
the millennial kingdom and ultimately the Ooh. eternal state when the new heavens and new earth are created will have physical bodies again but the spiritual existence it's noting why god condescended and took on human mm -hmm. nature so we could interact with us mm. when we go to him in spirit it's the same principle we're mm. interacting with him on his terms but that won't be our permanent place god gave us a body intentionally we're not gnostics but will there be a 13th floor I don't think God's intimidated. <laughs> <clears throat> Thank you, Keith, for the question. really appreciate you tuning in. Hope you'll join us again. Dwayne wants to know, what do we do when we're in emotional pain? What do we do in emotional pain? Well, I think like physical pain, you <clears throat> have to let it run its course, but pain, like anything else, is trying to tell you that something's wrong. So if you can understand the line between identifying the source of the physical pain and of course either learning the lesson i caused this so i'm not going to do that again someone else caused this so i'm going to make sure i set boundaries as to make sure they don't keep repeating this because naturally you don't want to be put in pain unless it serves a better purpose the lesson and i think best point to the point is to learn from it but as far as direct scriptural references are concerned, the um, most straightforward answer I could give is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where someone in emotional pain or physical pain, either or, it talks about what we do with comfort, the comfort that follows. So letting them run their course, letting the realities of God ultimately understand, get you through those things, you get the idea. We can talk about that more maybe at another time. But the push of second corinthians chapter one is that god is going to comfort you that's a given now you can receive it or not but the intent of that comfort is so that when we are comforted by god we can go and comfort others and there's a fairly impressive uh, practical insight into all of that that even modern psychologists would recognize is if you're miserable and depressed focus on someone who's worse off than you and get all your attention centered on them because a it gives you a break from your problems and b it helps two people so just mathematically that checks out you take one negative you make two positives but that's not a new idea second corinthians chapter one's noting the reason god gives us comfort is so that we can comfort others as we ourselves have been comforted principle of empathy, principle of grace and compassion, those kinds of deals. So if you're in emotional pain, I understand it hurts, otherwise it would be called emotional pleasure, but understand as well that God can not only get you through this, but use this as an opportunity and platform for you to be able to give the same comfort you need right now to others. So two things, focus on someone else, and two, take notes, because that someone else may need the same things you're about to go through to get through that pain. That'd be yeah. my answer. Yeah, and, and emotional pain can be a tremendous opportunity when you, when you think about it. Um, in Hebrews 12, God talks about our struggle against sin, and he says in verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord's discipline, the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children, for what children are not disciplined by their father. If you are not disciplined, then everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not, not true sons and daughters at all. So the idea here is that, <clears throat> and it's what I kind of 
tend to, where my mind goes, having experienced a lot of emotional pain in my lifetime, I'll be 50 next month. And uh, <clears throat> see, he's using what he's learned in order to comfort you. Yeah. <laughs> Is that uh, I have noticed that God has ministered to me more in depth and got down to, you know, the nitty gritty when I'm dealing with emotional pain. And so I always look to God and say, God, what are you trying to teach me in this moment? How can I use this pain in a way to glorify you? Pastor Scott gave me some really tremendous words of wisdom when I talked about my own failures and the emotional pain that those cause. And he says, redeem it, redeem it. Let God use it in a way that'll glorify him and that will serve the body of Christ. It'll serve other people. I'm also, uh, takes me to Psalm 51. I think it's uh, verse 17. Yeah, the sacrifices of God, this is Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And again, in Psalm 34, uh, 18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. So again, be reminded that this window of opportunity of having emotional pain is an opportunity that, that God can use to bring about a kind of humility that you otherwise can't have. If things are always just going so well and you're always happy because things are going your way, um, sometimes we forget. And so God reminds us through our pain, not that he causes the pain, but he reminds us that we need him and that we're frail, that we're vulnerable and sensitive, that we are created uh, to experience pain and endure suffering, and that these are good things and that God can not only be glorified in them, but we can actually be drawn closer to him in those moments where we cry out to him. All right. This next question, I think, uh, I don't have anything to say, so you want to take Bob's question? Oh, sure. <laughs> so, assuming you have lung capacity. Yeah, excuse me. Um, <clears throat> Bob says, I, I, I enjoy watching the show Fool Us with Penn and Teller, uh, simply as a form of entertainment. Yeah, it's a fun program. I, I have uh, friends who have been on there. I believe the Bible discourages magic, but when does the practice of magic cease becoming entertainment and becomes dangerous for Christians? Well, that's a really good question. I guess the way I would start it off, Bob, is first we have to define our terms. When someone says magic, what do they mean? The modern European usage of the word magic, which means someone who juggles, someone who manipulates things with their hands, so a juggler, was the first, were the first magicians. Um, inventors were magicians. So uh, the guy who created a trick called the talking box was the foundation for the development of the telephone. So these were people who were creating wonders and were uh, simply you know, either using their hands to create visual wonders or using technology to create other kinds of wonders. So that those kinds of people have evolved into becoming in a catch-all term of the word magician or magic. Um, but then there's the other type, which is what the Bible talks about. The, the word magic or magician, sorcerers, these are all people who are trying to use supernatural means to change the natural world. So when someone is trying to use supernatural means to alter reality, the Bible refers to it as sorcery, uh, witchcraft, which is the word pharmakia, which is the, the use of drugs to create an altered state of consciousness to, to develop experiences. Some of the words refer to people who use ventriloquism to throw their voice, 
to the idea that they can make it look like things are talking, like communicating with spirits, but it literally means to speak out of the hollow of your belly, so a form of intro, an ancient form of ventriloquism. Uh, the, the pharaoh's magicians, they were called magicians because they had an understanding of medicine and astronomy. Uh, Daniel was the chief of the magicians because, again, the magicians of Babylon were people who were men of, quote-unquote, science, uh, but also astronomy and astrology and mysticism. So you have to realize that there's the technical side of what we call magic, and then there's the religion. Uh, similar thing could be said about martial arts. I had a friend, I was studying Wing Chun Kung Fu. Uh, there was an actual student of Ip Man, the same teacher of Bruce Lee, who lives here in Tucson, Arizona, and so I went and studied Wing Chun. It's Chinese boxing. It's a phenomenal style. And I had this Christian brother who was just like, you're going to, you're going to walk away from God. I was like, what? I'm going to go study Chinese boxing because I love martial arts and I want to know how to defend myself. But also, it's just fun. It's an art. I, love, I enjoy it. No, no, it's, it's, it's a satanic. It's, you know, they worship the devil. What? <laughs> and so uh, Augustine Fong, you know, he was the, he's the grandmaster or whatever of, the, of his dojo or whatever. They, they don't call them dojos, but of his school. And, uh, you know, he's a believer, but he has some Buddhist beliefs as well. He kind of mixes Christianity and Buddhism. And, uh, you know, I thought, well, gosh, there's one thing to learn the skills of, of Chinese boxing, and there's another thing to adopt the religion. Well, with magic, I would say that there's something similar, is that what, what the Bible describes and what condemns is me attempting to do things that I, first of all, can't do. I can't predict the future, and I cannot communicate with the dead. That's not a possibility. Only God can do those things, and we see examples of God intervening and creating the illusion that someone could communicate with the Spirit. Even they were shocked. <laughs> but um, to Samuel, the witch of Endor. Yeah, the witch of Endor. But um, you have to realize that what modern-day magicians are is that first definition I gave you, people who use technology and juggling to create an entertaining effect. Uh, most magicians are atheists. Most magicians I know... Um, with rare exception, are not religious people. Some dabble in the occult, but once you sort of open up the back curtain and you see the real Wizard of Oz sitting there at the control booth and you realize, wait a minute, there's nothing to this, it loses all its supernatural allure. It's those who practice the occult who don't know anything about the art form called what I call sleight of hand illusions or magic. They're the ones that are de delving into uh, dangerous grounds in that sense, because now they're they're actually uh, following the path of worshiping cre the creation, which is what the magicians, the ancient magicians of Egypt, all did. They worshipped nature, the creation, false gods. So anything that would take the Israelites' attention off Yahweh, God considered it an abomination. If someone says, "Oh, I can predict the future," and they do a cold reading, and then they adopt all their religious beliefs about uh, you know, false idols and false religious ideas, it's an abomination to God, not because they're actually talking to spirits or actually predicting the future, not because of that, but because they're taking people's eyes off of the Lord and onto false ideas and worshiping not the creator, but the creature. And so that's how I kind of typically characterize the difference between um, what I do as an illusionist or what you might see magicians do on shows like Penn and Teller, uh, Fool Us, versus the occult. They're not remotely related, not historically, um, but <clears throat> there are crossovers in the sense that sometimes people use some of the same techniques that magicians use to entertain 
to dupe their followers into believing that they have some kind of genuine supernatural power when they do not. But it's and not so, the act of fooling the eye that's the issue, it's the message behind it. Yeah, it's like the internet. The internet's a great thing, and unfortunately, some of the great strides technologically that has made the internet more and more accessible and usable in our everyday lives was the porn industry. A lot of the great using credit, all the things that we use the internet for every day, were many of them were initiated and invented by pornographers, sadly. Now, pornography's bad, but does that mean that the entire internet's bad and using the internet for anything is bad? Not necessarily. So we, you know, the same thing is true with, if I, if I take a coin and I make it look like it dropped into my hand and I go, ooh, it's over here. Have I delved in the occult? Not necessarily, no, not at all. I'm showing people that you can actually create visual illusions. It's like, you know, going to the movies. Uh, movies are great, but they can be used for bad and they can also be used for good. And they can be used for boredom. <laughs> <laughs> that said, thank you for the question, Bob. Yeah, thanks a lot, Bob. We've got uh, 45 seconds, so why don't we see if we can knock one more out. Okay. How about the, uh, how do you battle loneliness? Oh, wait, I skipped one. Nope, that's fine, yeah. Yeah, you battle loneliness? Well, recognizing, I guess, that you're not alone. People are bored, like we were mentioning. It's because they sense a lack of purpose. If they're lonely, it's because they sense a lack of companionship. We were created for purpose, and we were also created for relationships. If you're in a single position, our culture definitely cultivates and depends on the idea that the only solution to that is through marital relationships and this fantasy that ultimately doesn't meet and satisfy. If you want to understand the principle of loneliness is based on a lie or train yourself out of that mindset, just understand Jesus' promise. I'll never leave you and forsake you. When he becomes enough for you, then you're going to find you're able to minister and meet the needs of other people who may feel lonely because the purpose of it isn't to appease your emotions, it's to see its fulfillment in Christ. Amen. Well, thanks for tuning in. We hope you've enjoyed the program. We'll be here again tomorrow. Remember, 4 o'clock, not 5 o'clock. God bless you. We'll see you then. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.